1: Hi, I'm Moon Unit Zappa, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Is there a library, or bookstore around here where I get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. Why have you
0: read this read one? This, all when you read my book. this is a story that
1: needs to be told. These rock and rollers want and to read. Shh,
2: quiet, please. Hi, everybody. This is Shelley Sorensen, the rock and roll librarian. And with me here today is Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist. Hi, Christian. How are you doing today?
0: Something seems off. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to start the show.
2: Hey, it's, I'm the rock and roll librarian.
0: It and it is you are the rock and roll librarian, and it is your show. <laughs> That's so right. So why do I always start the show?
2: I know. I switched it on you. Switched well, it up.
0: Maybe maybe we should uh, just uh, go with this from now on. Uh, uh, you are, you know, it, you are the attraction. I, I am the, uh, I'm the, what's called the loss leader, you know. Oh, I thought
2: you were attention. the straight man. No.
0: Or, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> or, 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 or
2: I'm the straight man. Oh, know.
0: no, 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 no. Uh, I definitely would be the straight man in this uh, relationship. So, huh. although I do provide uh, a fair amount of uh, comedy uh, on my yeah. own. so you do. All right, let's get into this. What, what, what is up for today?
2: Well, I read a very interesting book about Bob Marley. And um, it's called So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley. And it's by Roger Steffens. Roger Steffens is a reggae archivist was the host of a reggae radio show in LA and traveled and became friends with Bob Marley throughout his life or later life. And his archives include the world's largest collection of Bob Marley material. Uh, One of his most important contributions to the reggae legacy is the 10 CD series entitled The Complete Bob Marley and the Wailers, 1967 to 1972, which is a 220-track collection and includes rare recordings. So this guy was uniquely positioned to do interviews with Bob Marley's family, including his mother and his friends from childhood on up to the time he died, his wife, Rita Marley, and his other lovers, many friends, band members, and and music associates. And what he did was he took reams and reams and reams of interviews and turned them into a chronological telling of Bob Marley's life, putting in the interview material from that part of Bob's life into each chapter. So it reads like the story of his life but you're hearing from many people and it's interesting in the fact that sometimes you're hearing different versions of the same event and sometimes they're directly opposed to each other like one person will say this is what happened and another person will say no that's not what happened it was this Mm -hmm. you know so it it gives a really good feel for Bob Marley and it's just an interesting way to tell a story. I didn't know a whole lot about Bob Marley when I first started reading the book. Um, so this would, I, I think it, this book would be really great for those fans who want to dig deeper into his life. It's, it's not necessarily a beginner book about Bob Marley, but it's, you know, I found it to be quite interesting.
0: So how familiar were you with uh, the story of Bob
2: I was not very familiar. I was familiar with his best known songs. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I loved them. I love them. But I didn't know too much about his life story, um, except that, you know, he died prematurely of cancer and you know, he grew, obviously he was Jamaican. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Smoked <laughs> so, a lot of weed. I knew yeah, that part. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. He had
2: dread, he'd grew some dreadlocks, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but I didn't yeah. know, for example, that
0: he was a
3: Rastafarian, you know, right? Yeah. yeah like
2: yeah. when that, I didn't know when that started in his life. You know, I learned about Jamaican history from this, you know, like more recent Jamaican history yeah. from this book too. Yeah. So that was yeah. interesting. The social economic.
1: Kingston
0: man. Yeah yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. So anyway, yeah. Um, So uh, I thought we would listen to one of his uh, very well-known and well-loved songs uh, to start us out. And this is One Love.
0: All right, let's get it.
1: Get together and feel all right.
0: well, what do you think of reggae? I like reggae it's uh i yeah
2: it's, it's I do I it's mean very I chill. I, am, I mean
0: you could see where it goes with pot really well
2: yeah, I mean it's not something I would put like an entire Album or two on my car radio to drive to, probably. It mm-hmm. starts sounding a little samey, samey to me, but I guess yeah. you could say that about anything. I mean, I, True. you could say that about True. rock and roll, you know, yeah. yeah, there's three chords there, you know, yeah. big deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it all depends on what you're used to. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, I like that song because it really exemplifies what Bob Marley was all about. And yeah. he really was, you know, through everybody who was interviewed for this book, you know, that he was a spiritual man who all he wanted to do was play music and soccer. And of course, you know, uh, sleep with the ladies. But uh, otherwise, he was all, you know, for the people and all about love and sharing and- and I'm pretty sure we
0: all want that as our job description.
2: (laughs) Playing music. And sleeping with the ladies. Uh, oh, well, uh, spiritual too. Uh, spiritual. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Play music. Yeah. Sleep with and, the ladies. Yes.
2: Yeah. The, that's, in, not my, that's not my goal, well, but, you know. It's so, well, sleep flipping. with whatever,
0: you know, whatever it drives your fancy.
2: Yeah,
3: right. Yeah.
0: God, what a song. It's one of those songs that's, you know, standard. I mean, you hear it in bank commercials now, right. <laughs> things yeah. like that. It's crazy. But uh, but yeah, it, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a great song. Great song.
2: Yeah, I love that song. I, you know what else I love about reggae is the harmonies. Well, I love about Bob Marley and the Wailers is the harmonies because they yeah. had some very cool female harmonies. And even before they had the women singing with them, they did I mean, they they were a vocal group. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. But I but I love the harmonies. So um, Bob's mother was 18 when he was born, and his father, who was a white Jamaican man named Norville Marley, was mm-hmm. 64.
0: A Scotsman, if I remember right.
2: His family was Scots, but he was, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he was born and raised in Jamaica. Uh, yeah, uh, the,
0: the father. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. And he, uh, he was born in a tiny village called Nine Mile, a rural village. And uh, his father married his mother, whose name was Sadella Booker. But after he married her, he didn't really have much to do with the family. So he didn't really, he wasn't a fatherly influence on little Bob's uh, life. And his, so Bob was born Robert Nesta Marley. And Nesta was kind of his childhood nickname, or sometimes people called him Lester for Nesta. And he had uh, difficulties being biracial. He was, to the Black people in Jamaica, he was the little yellow boy, and his color was an impediment in both white and Black groups. So he had, yeah. like, racism going on from the white upper class and colorism going on from the the black underclass. And uh, by age three, a few different accounts, uh, people felt like, uh, noticed that he seemed to be, have some uh, psychic abilities, that he actually knew that he was going to die when he was 36. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but this kind of thing, maybe people yeah. tell.
0: Robert Johnson went down to the crossroads and uh, you know, was given his talent by the devil. Yeah.
2: Right. Anyway, everybody and his many people in his mother's family played music, and so he got the music uh, bug early in life. And when he was ten, his mother moved to the big city to Kingston with a man who uh, actually was the father of his future bandmate, known as Bunny Whaler. Yeah, Bunny. But, uh, yeah. His, yeah. his 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 real name was uh, Neville Neville Livingston or something funny like that. Um, something very English sounding, um, and they they actually growing up, got into a band, um, and they're both interested in music. They lived in Trenchtown, uh, which was uh, known as the ghetto, and as somebody said it was a place where everyone was poor and no one was poor because they all you know were at the same level, so uh, nobody noticed anybody was poorer than anybody else um and they lived in what was called what they called a yard which is like um in our country we'd call a uh, you know how subsidized housing for poor people um people escaped the poverty through sports and music which bob did both he was always to the end of his life a very avid soccer player And uh, someone named Joe Higgs, who was one of Jamaica's earliest recording stars, took Bob and the other kids that were on the street trying to make music under his wing and taught them all about singing and harmony and breath control and technique. So they had like really good tutoring for free. I mean, nothing. It was all like just a social kind of paying it forward on the part of Joe Higgs. And, you know, even though Bob didn't start out with the best voice of all the kids that he sang with, and he didn't even play guitar, like nobody, none of these kids that were hanging around really played guitar. It wasn't until Peter Tosh, who became a reggae star on his own, came to town on his own at the age of 15 carrying a battered guitar. And they started passing the guitar around. So that they could all learn how to play it. But mm-hmm. basically, they started as purely a vocal group. And they just, you know, gathered informally at that time. So there was in the first grouping of what was later known as Bob Marley and the Whalers or the Wailers Whalers was Bunny Whaler, Peter Tosh, um, Junior Braithwaite, who was only 13 and a couple of female singers named Sherry Green and Beverly Kelso. And Junior, even though he's 13, he was the best singer in the group. He sang kind of like Frankie Lyman. Yeah. So eventually they met somebody named Clement Coxon Dodd, who was the owner of uh, Studio One, which was the first place they started recording in, in Kingston. And he was very powerful in the music world at that time in 1964. He had a great band called the Scatolites, like from Ska, Scatolites. Scatolites. Yeah. Scatolites. The Scatolites. And he put on dances and he had a radio station. And they used to take mobile discos around Mm -hmm. the city and put speakers Mm -hmm. up in the trees. And then they would be like kind of competing with each other, trying to get the kids to go from one to the other. And when they recorded their first hit at Cox and Dodds, Studio One, which was called Simmer Down. And it was uh, a song that was written by Bob. And uh, interestingly, I thought Beverly Kelso, this uh, female singer, joined the group the day before Bob went to her house and said, Hey, can you sing with us? And she came to the studio. And that was both her audition and the recording of Simmer Down was on the same day. Wow. And it was very popular among the people of Trenchtown and Kingston because one of their own had put out this really upbeat fun kind of party song. So let's right. listen to Simmer Down. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's get it. Simmer Down. definitely more ska than reggae
2: yeah
0: because as we know reggae doesn't arrive until yeah. later in the 60s so because i think this is 63 64 if i was saying, yeah 63 yeah, 64 and uh, uh, is that bob in the lead or was that junior in the lead
2: i believe it was bob sounds yeah, it like sounds like, wrote like bob this, but wrote this song. let's we're gonna hear junior in a minute and you'll okay. see okay yeah so so that one uh was like on the radio, and like I said, the whole populace felt great about it. It sold 80,000 copies in an island with only 2 million people. And um, at the time they started recording, Jamaica had just gained independence from Great Britain. So there was a nationalist pride, and then, of course, the the parties, the Jamaican native (laughs) parties, started going, and there was the right, and there was the left, and there was gangs, And so Simmer Down was a response to all the fighting, Mm -hmm. the street, but especially by young people, like the different parties would pit young people against each other, sponsor Mm -hmm. musical contests. And yeah, it was quite, um, I think, quite wild. Wow. Uh, so
0: they'd sponsor uh, concerts to, you know, rile up their people and yeah. get them excited.
2: Yeah. Oh, maybe the Republicans and, teach, and Democrats
0: and should, should do that here. huh?
2: Yeah. And they taught <laughs> trades and music yeah. and stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, it doesn't sound too bad, except for that it was violent. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one other thing to note about the whalers was that theirs was one of the I think the first group that had more than three people in it, because that, that was the standard was three people in a group. And so they added four men and two women. And that was just unique at that time. So uh, the first ballad they did was composed by and sung by Junior Braithwaite. And it was called It Hurts to be Alone. And was recorded in 1964, the day before he left Jamaica for the US with his parents and he was only 13. But it was a smash. This one was a really big hit too in jamaica and it was inspired by curtis mayfield and also the impressions and probably frankie lyman too so you'll hear a a different side of the whalers here
0: it hurts to be alone
2: love the guitar on that too don't you that's it's a really pretty song yeah, but it's more yeah. r&b than yeah
3: it's got an obviously. r&b yeah yeah
2: yeah
0: yeah r&b uh, you know yeah. they're copying. copying american songs sure. that they're hearing on the radio yeah,
2: yeah. and they're going to like every young you know musician we've you know in rock and roll they you know develop their style as they continue playing with each mm-hmm. other and mm-hmm. and they they would uh, everybody was writing in the band not Uh, somebody said not with pen and paper but you know sitting around and jamming and throwing lyrics and song ideas back and forth and so they were all co-writers and all collaborative um but but bob was the acknowledged leader uh not not sure you know that uh, he was just the one that was most interested in creating a certain sound or you know and he would tell the backup singers, what he wanted them to sing, for example. So he was kind of the arranger of the of the group, mm. and then they would also uh, hang around in Studio One and harmonize with other bands that were recording. You know, it was kind of a a social life as well. And they were with this Cox and Dodd from June of 1964 to late 1966. As usual, in these kinds of situations, he wasn't necessarily treating them financially like they should have, but he was crucial to their development. He promoted them, which was really important. He gave them a great backing band, the Scatolites. And so they were very happy to be associated with him at the time. And uh, they had a lot of uh, records on the charts uh, in Jamaica in those days. They uh, had one, two, three, four... Five songs in the charts at once, including Simmer Down and It Hurts to Be Alone. And the the first album that was put out with their name on it was called The Wailing Wailers, which was published on the Studio One label. And it wasn't really an album. It was more like a compilation of various singles that they had put out over the years. But one thing I thought was really cool about that album was it includes a cover of What's New Pussycat? And I was so like,
0: I <laughs> mean, like the Tom <laughs> you know, the, Jones, yeah. what's new, Pussycat? Yeah. Oh.
2: So I thought people would have fun listening to it as I did. I thought that was um, very strange and special that they would cover that song. But they just covered whatever, whatever caught their ear. You know how it is. Right, when right, you cover right. Band? Make yeah. it
0: their own and uh, uh-huh. that'll work.
2: Yeah. So let's have a listen. What's okay. new, Pussycat?
0: I love, I like his phrasing um how he says what's new pussycat <laughs> that's
2: cuz that's like uh, uh, phrased around the lilt in his accent yeah. and his yeah. voice yeah yeah uh, they really did uh have have a a way I mean I I remember uh reading that when he went to Sweden for example none of the Swedes could understand his English because it was so unlike you know any English they had ever heard. So there's definitely a patois. Yeah, know, the, the,
0: the Caribbean patois. Yeah, right, the ca- right, the right.
2: cadence and the um, and different words too used for you know. Yeah, I mean there's some,
0: the some, the 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 colloquialisms that yeah, that uh, colloquialisms. don't make it out of well, and especially if you go to like, can Jamaican Sweden be like two of the most. Just Disparate, type yeah. of countries in the world. <laughs> like, remember
2: that movie about the Jamaicans who went oh, the bo- to... The
0: bobsled right? team? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was, yeah, yeah That's yeah. what that
2: reminded me of. I was yeah. like, oh, because he spent some time in Sweden. I thought that was interesting, yeah. So around this time, uh, Bob met Rita Anderson, who was a singer. She sang in a band called the Solettes. Mm-hmm which is a cute name, yep. and it was a Studio One band as well, and she would go on giving birth to three of his children. And at first, Peter Tosh was also interested in Rita. Now, Peter Tosh's nickname was Peter Touch because <laughs> he couldn't keep his hands off the ladies. Uh, so, um, but Bob won out, and Rita already had a daughter, so he moved, you know, like it instantly became a father. And then she got pregnant with his first child, who I believe was, well, it was either Ziggy or Stevie. I don't know which one is older. They got married uh, in 1966 and shortly thereafter, or maybe the next day, I think, he went to Delaware in the States to be with his mother who had moved there and to make some money. So he lived in the States for about nine months, uh, working odd jobs to save some money to take home. And while he was gone in April, 1966, Haile Selassie from Ethiopia came to Kingston.
0: Rastamon.
2: Yeah. So Rita was at the motorcade and was totally overwhelmed and affected by seeing him and her brother. We
0: we need to explain why.
2: Well, because he's the coming of the Lord. I mean, he's like the kingdom of heaven, right? I mean, uh,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. He was supposedly a deity.
2: Yeah, right, <laughs> right. And and uh, the Jamaican people were just, you know, uh, out in droves to see him. Uh, his visit had a profound effect on Jamaica and the whalers. So her uh, Rita's brother is the one who introduced Bob when he came back to Rasta. And that's when... They, uh, the whalers all started um, getting involved in Rasta and the, you know, cultural mores and values of Rasta, which is a very clean living kind of religion. You know, they had to give up a lot of stuff, but also start smoking a lot more ganja. So,
3: because
0: that'll help get you there.
2: Yeah. You know, personally, I can't smoke weed and. Sing or play, because I get confused, <laughs> but apparently, there are people that can do anything when they're stoned.
0: I, I think some people prefer to do things when they're stoned, and some people prefer to do things when they're not stoned
2: right, um,
0: right. it depends when i'm on the stoned, thing.
2: I just want to watch t v and just you know chat <laughs> with friends and giggle and stuff i don't like to I don't like people looking at me when i'm stoned, so that would be a problem if you're a right, musician right, right. yeah. Anyway, uh, since there was a new underclass of disillusioned youth, and the CIA was fueling the right wing against the leftists, which was further dividing, you know, the right and the left in Jamaica, and uh, there was more youth groups that were specifically known as the rude boys that were um, kind of That's gang right. members. That's right, the rude boys. right? Yeah. But in Rasta, Rasta wasn't political. is about unity. Mm-hmm. So, Bob, you can see how Bob took to that really naturally. So, you know, and the Jamaican right wing government was trying to repress Rasta because it was, it was somehow interfering with their, with their agenda. But as Bob Marley became more and more famous, uh, the government kind of drew back. When he came back from uh, the States, he went looking for Cox and Dodd and Studio One. And Cox and Dodd was trying to, as in all groups with superstars, trying to separate Bob from the rest of the Whalers. But the Whalers all wanted to leave him because they knew it was kind of cheating them and not uh, doing them right. But Bob wanted to do a couple more songs at the studio because they still didn't have the instrumental chops that the Scatolites had. So it was a boon to them to play with this great backing band. Um, so the, the last, one of the last songs they recorded there was one called Bend Down Low, which sold 50,000 copies. And at that time, when that came out, they started to call themselves The Wailing Wailers, so let's hear Ben Down Low from the Wailing Whalers.
0: The Wailing Whalers at Studio One. Well, that's starting to sound like reggae.
2: Yes. Yeah. The reggae rhythm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, some of the, the, the ska sensibilities have been stripped away now. Um, it's also, it's just the poor recordings of, uh, I mean, it's like a empty box room with a single microphone in it or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's just, it's very, very poor quality. Now I, this is, 66 maybe
2: yeah they didn't have great recording technique Yeah, i was going to mention that uh they only had like four tracks for example and then they had to send the recording other places to have musicians add you know more tracks to it and mix it and stuff like that but the infrastructure on the island wasn't great at that time i would say
3: yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I'm hearing there. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool to get us there.
2: Yeah. So they, they left this uh, Studio One eventually, you know, didn't have uh, didn't really make any money on these uh, hits that they put out. So they left Studio One. And right after that, Bob was having some writer's block. And they decided to take both bands, the Solettes and the Wailing Whalers, back to Nine Mile where Bob had grown up and farm and just kind of hang out on the farm and write songs. So that was a nice break for him. And by the time he came back to Kingston, he was refreshed and, you know, started, you know, able to start writing more. And by 1967, Danny Sims and Johnny Nash came to Jamaica. Now, you remember Johnny Nash. He just passed away, I believe. He, re- he sang that song, I Can See Clearly Now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, he was a big deal in spreading reggae to the rest of the world. Um, he had seen Marley in Trenchtown at a Rastafarian festival and decided that they had to sign him as soon as possible. Danny Sims was a controversial publisher who played a pivotal role in Marley's emergence. They created a publishing company called Cayman Music and also a record label called Jad, J A D, and signed Marley and Peter Tosh as writers and recording artists and Rita with recording a uh, recording artist and a publishing contract because at that time Bunny was arrested on a weed charge and sent to prison for a year and had to do hard labor as well because he was caught with marijuana. So he was out of the band for a little while. Yeah. And Rita stepped in and they spent a lot of time at Danny Sims' house playing, writing, and recording. And they wrote many songs for Johnny Nash and other artists on that label. They were paid $100 a week And everything they recorded belonged to Sims and Nash. So they're still not getting publishing credits and uh, royalties. So this is what I was saying, that the recording studios only had two two or three tracks available. So they added tracks, sent the recordings to Canada and added Jamaican musicians that were living in Canada to the tracks. And then they finished the recordings in America and England where they could use uh, 8 to 12 track
0: so you're suggesting that they did all this during the coronavirus uh, period, right? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> that's well basically remotely. everybody does it now. <laughs> right. That's what
2: I'm doing with a group of my friends. We're yeah. just sending our tracks around, yep. like, put something on this track, okay? Yep. Um, and uh, Sims, Danny Sims later said, if it weren't for Johnny Nash, reggae would never have been a worldwide international music. Now I'm not sure about that because there were there could have been other ways that reggae got out to the world but he was certainly uh, very yeah, important Yeah th-
0: there are other people that are beginning to pay attention um I know the Rolling Stones are beginning to record in Jamaica eh, nah, I guess it's early 70s when people started yeah. making pilgrimages over there but like Paul Simon he's got a reggae influenced song in about 69 so um uh, so yeah t- t- but but uh, Around johnny, this time. Johnny yeah johnny johnny nash definitely was he was one of the first non jamaicans to go to jamaica right. and record right reggae music so yes, yes. That, and he recorded
2: uh, many of marley's yeah. and the others compositions including stir it up yeah which i thought it would be fun to listen to a little bit of both uh, the wailers doing stir it up and Johnny Nash doing Stir It Up and how Johnny Nash's version, of course, is, you know, cleaned up and there are elements added to it that will appeal more to the American and European market because he was their first exposure to the rock steady and reggae sounds and so the the his arrangement is fuller you know it has more instrumentation yes. on it yeah more pop uh, sounding
0: yeah yeah so, all right so let's listen to a little uh, bob marley and then we'll crossfade over to uh, johnny nash doing stir it up
1: I've got you on my
0: the flute yes (laughs) Um, so there's that obviously the tempo is speeded up uh, a little bit more a little more groovy uh not not so you know uh, Uh, and then uh, how about the breakdown in the chorus uh the verses of like stripping it back and then the flute yes
1: yeah the flute (laughs)
2: the flute i actually like the whalers uh version better but i remember that johnny I nash's do. version I, yeah. come out you On know, the radio, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah i liked it i mean yeah. it was good it's a good yeah. song yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 um so uh, i believe johnny nash's version came out before the whalers though because uh the next thing i'm going to say is that uh danny sims wanted to record bob singing as well, but Bob needed coaching with mic technique, just like me. And um, because he would get so animated when he was singing that he lost control of the microphone. So he had had to have somebody tutor him about, you know, how to keep the microphone in front of his mouth while he was, uh, you know, while he was singing. Um, so and the other thing, um, I guess I guess know, it works
0: in a box with a single microphone uh, over uh, the entire band. But right, right. But if you're going to just record, record stems, the, the yeah <laughs> the
2: vocal the lead vocal, you know, on yeah. one track, yeah. yeah. He, you know, so the um yeah the other thing is, uh, you know, like I mentioned before, that the harmonies, the Whalers harmonies, were impressive, and one thing that. Uh, somebody mentioned was they're staggered just a little bit. So that made them special, which I haven't quite pinpointed that. uh, But if you want to listen to Bob Marley and the Wailers, uh, listen to see if you can hear that the background harmonies were staggered. Mm -hmm. So when Bunny was released, they kicked Rita out of the group. He was the stronger singer, but Bob had style, charisma, and was the obvious superstar. Even though they all wrote, I mean, we know Peter Tosh went on to his own solo career. Yeah, very much and so. And yeah. Bunny Whaler did too. So, um, so he, but Stephens cautions us not to downplay Rita's role. Nash says, Johnny Nash, who was a great singer, says she was an African Madonna with a voice like silk and honey. She was with Bob every day and sang all harmonies under his lead, so when he told her what to sing and she sang them, um, Sims did about 90 tracks with them between 1968 and 1972. So uh, at this time, the Whalers had parallel careers. They recorded for the Caribbean market on their own label. I forgot to mention that they started their own label, which they called Whalen Solem. Which is kind of a mouthful and try typing it. It's whale <laughs> apostrophe N, soul apostrophe M. So this was supposed to be the common combined label for the whalers and the soulettes. Wow. Yeah. And then they then they also recorded for the international market on the JAD productions under Danny Sims. But it was still hard to get local airplay due to the Payola system, and they couldn't sell enough records to build their own studio. And in 1970, they changed their label's name from Whalen Solemn to Tuff Gong.
0: Easier to say. Which is a better, yeah, it's easier <laughs> to
2: say. They recorded with the producer, Lee Scratch Perry, who was influential to their sounds. And um, for example, and then uh, this guy, Lee Scratch Perry, uh, claimed writing credits for a lot of their recordings, including the the song, Small Axe, um, but Bunny, who, who who is interviewed quite a bit for this book, argues that he never contributed much to any song. This guy's Perry. And um, actually, Small Axe, he claims, was not co-written by Perry, but it doesn't matter. It's about the small axe going up against the big tree, which is a uh, code for the big three, which referred to the label owners and producers who wanted to form a monopoly of control over music on the island. So this is like a dig
1: the at big the establishment.
2: Yeah, this is like Elvis Costello singing Radio, Radio, yeah. Yeah. or uh, Nick Lowe singing uh, I Love My Label. You know, they're, it's like underhanded, like uh, passive-aggressive well. way to get back at the people in power.
0: Yeah, the Sex Pistols EMI, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. So anyway, Small acts. let Let's listen to Small X.
1: I say your word.
2: Song came out. Um, the Whalers hooked up with a new rhythm section that stayed with Marley for the rest of his life and influenced his sound. The brothers Carly and a Family Man Barrett, who were a bass, bass player and drummer, who were local boys and sought after session musicians. So that was a good catch for Bob because uh, after the Whalers broke up, this was the band that would stay with him uh, throughout his career. At, at, uh, in the early 70s, Bob, who was still involved with the Sims Nash team, went to Sweden and England for months at a time to record with them. I don't know why Sweden, but anyway. Um, oh, yeah. At the time, Johnny Nash was writing a screen, uh, no, a, a soundtrack for a movie that he was starring in, and he wanted Bob to come mm. and help him score you know write the music for that Mm -hmm. and then uh, when they were done with that Peter and Bunny met Bob in England and um, toured with Nash and Nash's album I can see clearly now was a big hit and included four Marley songs so Marley toured with Nash as an opening act but Nash didn't want the Wailers to go on with him because he knew that they were really going to light up a stage, um, but at the for the last um, show that they did, Sims finally let the Whalers go on in rural England, and the audience went crazy for them. But when Nash came on, they left the club. So Nash was furious, and he and uh, Danny Sims broke up, and that was the end of Bob's, uh, you know, collaboration with Johnny nash but meanwhile tough gong label was doing well in jamaica with the song lively up yourself which came out around that time and was a one of a good run of songs money started coming in and the house they wanted to buy was in with within reach so they had wanted to buy a house for the band you know to practice in yeah, and kind of yeah. hang out so uh let's play lively up yourself of course is, uh, that's a great one song on their, uh on their own label tough gong gonna lively up myself <laughs> is that yeah. what i said oh yeah. you're
0: laughing because i said that I, uh, in lively, break. Up,
2: lively up myself so um <laughs> it was around this time that uh that bob and the whalers got involved with island records and chris blackwell he had to um, get out of a contract with sony to do that um bob was ready for the stage of the world seemed like they had finally found a champion to bring them and their music to the outside world. So they started work on the album, catch a fire. It took them a month to record and then it was ready to mix. Modern production techniques and lead guitar were new to reggae, but Blackwell knew that Westerners responded to the sound. So they added more lead guitar onto their recordings and the album was given a full scale rock treatment. Um, Bob Blackwell changed their name from Bob, Marley, and the Wailers to simply the Wailers. And they've had a, they had a lot of name changes. The Wailers, the Wailing Wailers. And uh, one example of the um, songs that was on the album Catch a Fire was is Slave Driver, which um, has very nice harmonies and also includes the phrase Catch a Fire, after which the album was named. Yep. So uh, let's have a listen to a slave driver. I, love, I love the harmonies on this.
3: Ooh.
0: That is now fully formed Bob Marley and the Whalers. I mean, yes, the, the, the sound is classic. Uh, it's now uh, quality, uh, well produced. Uh, and you know, now, now, now we are uh, in the, the heart of the game here,
2: yes, sir. Let's see, yeah, it definitely sounds like them. And, um, you
0: know, that's that's Chris Blackwell and Island Records coming in and providing value right away,
2: right cleaning it up, but still maintaining the, you know, the feel of it and getting into the reggae feel. Um, yeah. It's actually the, the, the original lineup of Peter Tosh and uh, and Bunny Whaler and Bob didn't last forever. The next album that they did, Burning, turned out to be the final album by the original trio And they actually uh, mixed and overdubbed in London in the spring of 73 and took all of their traditional rhythm instruments with them and played a lot of live dates at colleges and nightclubs in England. The biggest reggae thing in England since Jimmy Cliff. Remember that? (laughs) And that great um, movie. Uh, oh, for God's sakes! We love.
0: Oh, it. oh, oh! The um, yeah, the Jimmy Cliff um,
2: yeah, blazing the in the
0: reggae uh, movie. Oh yeah, what is that called? I uh, should have
2: written it down. I knew I wasn't going to forget it because it oh, oh, was the harder they come. The harder they come. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, great, great movie. I love that. Um, so um, let's see. He, uh, of course, he had a girlfriend in England. Uh, her name was Esther Anderson claims she had a role in writing uh, Get Up, Stand Up, which is the next song we're going to listen to, and that it only took 20 minutes. And the reason she thinks that she had a role in this is was that she had lived with Marlon Brando for seven years and said that she was teaching Bob to be a rebel. And that's how this song came about. So. Really? Yeah. That's kind of like tenuous. Like, did you write any of the lyrics or... or or the tune or anything or do you just keep you know like elbowing him and saying you got to be a rebel like marlon brando so i don't know so get up and
0: stand up
2: yeah get up and stand up man Uh, (laughs) but you know this is one of his most uh rebellious and political songs. yeah yeah um so yeah, we're listening to a lot of songs here, not talking as much, but that's okay. People like to listen to songs.
0: I believe so. I yeah. believe that is a thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do it. Get up, stand up. the fight The uh, the the snare uh, work with the boom. It's like that's get you into every song. Okay, now we're going here. Uh, uh, that must
2: be the traditional way of playing drums. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah but, <laughs> could be.
0: But I think now we're get, we're getting close to where we're Bob. Speaking of, I think I shot the sheriff is coming up them. Yes, somebody, said, somebody uh, shoots Bob. <laughs> somebody shoots at Bob. I should say, but yeah, yeah. too bad. Yeah, well, well, so
2: this Esther. Uh, Esther Anderson says she also uh, collaborated on the storyline for I Shot the Sheriff. And she says, it came, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. I don't know about this one. I don't know about this one. Says she was on the pill, but Bob wanted to plant his seed in her, <laughs> which is part of the, that's one of the lines in the song. And And she says the sheriff was a code word for the doctor because the doctor gave her the pill so that she wouldn't get pregnant and Bob couldn't plant his seed. But other people, Lee Scratch Perry claims that he was with Bob when he came up with the first line, which they thought was hilarious since there were no sheriffs in Jamaica. Um, But the the repression reflected in the song was real. Also, Westerns were very popular in Jamaica at the time. So obviously, Bob had watched some Western movies, and maybe it was a, a combination of all of these ideas. But what happened was Eric Clapton, as we know, covered the song. And made, made it, it a, a worldwide, worldwide, but yeah, worldwide yeah. smash, yeah. yeah. And this was uh, created the final ray of attention necessary to shine the global spotlight on the whalers.
3: Right.
2: So I thought it would be interesting to just hear a little bit of each version. The, um, what hit me was that the backup harmonies on the whalers version is quite different um, and almost sounds a little alien to our ears, especially if we we grew up with the Eric Clapton version, which is more, you know, what I was used to hearing. Yeah. So um, yeah. I thought, it, yeah, it's interesting to hear how they arrange the the vocals differently on these two. Besides, probably there's a rat-a-tat-tat too. <laughs>
0: I don't know. Let's see. All right. I shot the sheriff first from the whalers and then from Eric
1: Clapton. Right. I shot the sheriff. I swear it was in Freedom came my way one day
2: and I So uh, yeah I'm not sure that's a song about birth control but you know
0: <laughs> I think it's about shooting a sheriff
2: Probably but, but not
0: a deputy <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't know well, that's don't, just me so, yeah
2: that part yeah. i'm not the, sure like i never yeah. understood that like why not the deputy too but because know, the sheriff why, was the asshole
0: true? because he was probably uh i don't know had his knee on the back of uh, the neck of some uh poor kid right. or something like yeah. that you know? and so I mean, even though they yeah
2: they didn't have sheriffs in jamaica they still knew well, they right.
0: law. The law, man. Yeah, exactly. and they still have That you know, they just yeah, yeah. It. and as you said, uh, you know, uh, westerns were popular uh, in Jamaica. Now, right. it's interesting that uh, you know the uh, the Whalers version does start with the with the snare kick. Mm-hmm. The Clapton does not, um, yeah. and uh, and of course the the Whalers have the high harmonies, in uh, yeah. uh, Eric's uh, you know the traditional three part uh, you know like a third and a fifth is is what's going on there so yeah yeah
2: yeah so um shortly after this the the whalers broke up now like with other breakups there were many factors and of course you know many voices were weighing in (laughs) yeah but i mean the main thing was they had three talented singer songwriters in the same band it's the yeah. reason supergroups break up like yeah. little village well, yeah uh, they don't you know, get
0: they don't get uh, you know it's like george harrison who's coming into his own in the beatles how do you how right, do you exactly. stop people and, from going oh can we not have five lennon and mccartney songs and right you know, it's sort of you know
2: it's it's hard and then, as peter tosh said i did not come on earth to be a background singer that's yeah. what Peter Tosh said. Yeah. But the reggae world was very sad. It was like the Beatles had broken up. Yeah. In, yeah. In Jamaica. And um, by the end of uh, 1973, the trio no longer toured or recorded. Uh, oh, one other factor was that Bunny, uh, Bunny Whaler, was a devout Rasta, and he didn't want to go on tour to America and play at gay clubs and places where people were doing drugs other than ganja so that was a factor for him it was Mm. basically a religious you know factor and that Mm. you know he made that decision and he said i'm just not going Mm. you know okay that's fine so um so marley's first solo album in 74 was natty dread and uh he was becoming more Political as Jamaica was suffering economically, he kept the Barrett brothers on as his rhythm section and hired a trio of female backup singers Rita, Marsha Griffiths, and Judy Moat, And they called themselves the The I I Three. Yeah, the I Three. The I Three, because I didn't quite understand it, but there's something about the Rasta uh, religion that um, everybody is one, so we're all I. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not we, it's I. We're all the ego, basically. Um, they contributed to the visual appeal of the stage show. The three women in colors red, gold, and green, gracefully flowing in unison. The live shows began to resemble gospel, gospel gatherings like a preacher and his choir. Their harmonies elevated such songs as no woman no cry and its refrain everything's going to be all right which was uh we're going to listen to a live performance of no woman no cry which um which you can find on his album his posthumous album legend legend. and that helped make it one of marley's finest compositions having these Mm -hmm. women involved in it Mm -hmm. so let's listen to the live version of No Woman, No Cry. All right. I love that recording because uh, first of all, it, you know, it opens with the people like just hearing the opening chords of the and song and starting to Whoa. sing yeah. the, you know, uh, everything's going to be all right and no woman, no cry. And then the beautiful background, you know, harmonies that, that started. And and then, you know, people responded to having the women there on stage Um and uh let's see his next album oh oh this is cool he bought finally bought a big house com- a kind of a compound on a hope road uh in in, a, in jamaica, jamaica yeah. where all the band members and families lived and uh he ate very healthfully this was part of the rasta tradition was um eating Uh, You know, there were certain dietary rules and they would all play soccer and eat healthfully and exercise and, you know, not like what you think of a a rock and roll compound as being like. Um, Then his next album, their next album was Rastaman Vibration, which was released in 76 and was heavily promoted. And uh, the song that I'd like to listen to of this album is Positive Vibration.
0: feeling the positive vibration
2: positive vibration man. positive <laughs> <How's> that? <laughs> yeah that'll work okay all right well unfortunately there wasn't a positive vibration no. <laughs> on, on the day the day that uh, the gunman drove into the compound on Hope, Hope Road, Road. and yeah. started firing wildly at everybody.
0: That seems to be a problem in Jamaica because, yeah. uh, what is it? Uh, about 10 years later, Peter Tosh gets, you know, taken hostage and tortured and killed. Oh, by no, I didn't gang, know that. Gang rival gangs as well. Yeah. It's,
2: <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, um, yeah. Un- uncontrolled <laughs> kind of activity going on. Um, they uh well so this was two days before a huge concert called the smile jamaica concert
0: oh that's right which he decided to play anyway right yeah well
2: you're spoiling the story oh i am i'm sorry i'm sorry what happened no nothing (laughs) Uh, uh uh anyway so what what happened was um the 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 concert was meant to foster national unity, which is kind of funny. But uh, and with elections coming up, the country was very tense. So the PNP, which was currently in power, was the most more social, the socialist uh, government, sponsored the concert. So it might have appeared that Bob Marley was uh, you know supported the PNP but Marley was very careful every all the musicians were very careful not to have alliances because it was very dangerous oh, to yeah. have alliances mm-hmm. so he didn't you know he was just like this is just a concert um so um he and since Bob because he had a relationship with a white Jamaican woman named Cindy Brexpier who became who was kind of the love of his life at that time at that time. Um he moved both in black and white worlds, so both with the elite and with the uh un unelite or working class. And um so he was kind of walking the tightrope anyway. And it's really not known even to this day what the you know what the hit was all about. But what happened was um the guards that were guarding the compound that they were paying uh, mysteriously weren't there that day. And two carloads of assassins just drove in and started firing at people, but nobody was killed. So that's significant because these people were sitting ducks yeah. and even came into the room where they were recording, I shot the sheriff and uh, shot uh, Bob in the arm. Unfortunately, Rita was driving in at the time and she got shot in the head. Um, but only a couple people actually had very, very serious injuries. So that's kind of suspicious in itself. You know, like there could have been carnage, but there wasn't. So was this a political message? But but some people believe it was uh, the mob coming to collect on one of bob's friends gambling jets so that's also a possibility there was like a lot of possibilities yeah it's an
0: unsolved crime i still i think it's still an unsolved crime today
2: yeah it is um so the story that ensues after this though is very interesting because bob was immediately whisked away to a hideout up in the hills Rita was at the hospital because she got shot in the head. head. (laughs) I think it's not just a flesh wound. Um, And this whole uh, drama unfolds about whether Bob is going to go on and play this concert, which most people didn't want him to do because it's like, wait, you were just almost killed. Now you're going to go on stage in front of tens of thousands of people and expose yourself to whoever tried to kill you before. And one of the people who tried to talk him out of performing was Roberta Flack, who was, I guess, in the country to be at that concert. Um, so there was a lot of um, back and forth about that. And also, this film crew had come in to film the concert. And after the assassination, they landed right after Bob, you know, this assassination attempt, and ended up filming Bob like going up to the place where he was hiding out and being part of all of this decision-making about whether Bob was going to go on stage. And then they get, they went, when he decided that he was going to do it, he got a police escort to the concert and all of these people that were in his circle, including police and all of like the opening band on all of the people from the, um, I can't remember the 12 tribes, which was a Rasta organization and um, his band. And just, there were probably 200 people on stage to put their bodies
0: in between a bullet in between him and Bob. Yeah. And
2: the author of the book said when he interviewed uh, 20 people after the concert, they all agreed that they had been on stage to, (laughs) to protect Bob and you can actually find video footage of this concert on YouTube. It's very fuzzy. It's not good quality because the cameramen were already always were holding handheld cameras Mm because they had sent all their expensive shit Mm -hmm. back to the States. And, but it's, it is very interesting. I mean, there, there are a lot of people on the stage and because Bob was shot in the arm, he couldn't play the guitar and um, so he's just dancing and singing. Rita left the hospital with bandages around her head to come and sing with him. Can you imagine getting shot in the skull and going on stage to sing? I mean, anyway, so... Was, i do
0: it. Um, i do it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I've done it. I've had it happen.
2: Oh, well, yeah. <clears throat> well, Close. I know you've been shot around. Yeah, I know. Hey, wait a
0: minute. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it was Bob's gang who was trying to... <laughs>
2: So, um, the author says this it was an unprecedented moment in 20th century pop music. Bob standing there with the bullet in his arm, singing a cappella in front of 80,000 people just days before a pivotal national election, beside his wife, who has a bullet lodged in her skull. Yeah. And both of them, they never had the bullets removed because it was too dangerous. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, after that concert, he flew the, to the Bahamas uh, to get a, a little R&R, uh, and then he flew to London to be with his, his girlfriend, Cindy Breakspeare, and started recording both um, two albums, Exodus and Kaya, which would appeal to wider audience. So Exodus includes the song, which I love, Three Little Birds, so sweet. Uh, so let's listen to Three Little Birds after that horrible Uh, assassination attempt and concert, we're going to listen to a lovely little song called Three Little Birds.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Definitely one of my favorite pop songs. I yeah, really, really. That's just such a beautiful song.
2: That's even on a a a, a sweet uh, album of children's songs that mm-hmm. we used to have at the library because it mm-hmm. you know it appeals to everybody. Yeah. Oh
0: I think. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So that album was chosen by Time magazine as the album of the century and was an instant success. The next one, Kaya. So both of these albums were yeah. recorded around the same time uh, includes more love songs because, you know, he's in love with this woman, Cindy, um, who was, by the way, did I mention that she was Miss world of 1976? Yeah, so 1976,
0: 1976. Yeah. yeah. So she She's was a beauty by, queen Yeah, yeah and, a, and, and a musician herself. She was a musician as well.
2: Oh, read about that.
3: Mm-hmm. Um
2: so um <clears throat> but what happened? Oh so that I thought that we could um listen to the song Is This Love, which oh, is obviously written about thing. her and that's beautiful. Yeah. And um but at the at the time that <clears throat> it was written, he was prepping for a world tour and uh, this, you know, this song was released on the album Kaya Is This Love. to the love story that he had with Cindy Breakspeare he they actually had a child together His name is Damien oh Marley yeah. Yeah. yeah so she's his mother uh, so it was a real relationship and uh, Rita seems to have been... I don't know, somehow okay with it. She did write her own autobiography, so Beta, I should go there yeah. to find out how she <clears throat> yeah. really felt about all of this. I think it's called No Woman, No Cry, actually. <laughs>
0: Appropriate. It's <is> a great <laughs> yeah.
2: title. Yeah. Anyway, around this time in 1977, while he was preparing for a world tour, he began to show signs of fatigue and stress, compounded by the assassination attempt, but possibly something else. The toe that he had injured three years before was re-injured playing soccer when a spike went through his toenail. And a biopsy done at the time of treatment for the toe showed melanoma, but no spread yet. However, they didn't have the science, um, like the CAT scans and MRIs that we use now, to really know if the cancer had spread. So mm. we don't really know if it had. But he was given advice to amputate his toe but he didn't want to lose his toe due to he would lose his balance so the big toe is very important for balance and soccer was very important to him as well as moving around on stage so he decided to do a skin graft in Miami and I've never heard of such a thing but this was 1978 and it tied him over for a couple of years and he was able to first he had to cancel his US tour and then he was able to play in Jamaica at the One Love Peace Conference in April 1978. And in 1979, he put out an album called Survival. So his, on this album, we can see that Bob's music was now telling about liberation struggles in Africa because it includes the titles uh, Africa Unite and Zimbabwe which was not written by Bob, but reflects a specifically unique nation and upheaval and the answers to its problems. And the author says it's the centerpiece of the album. It was his most militant album and won the first one with all new songs. So let's listen to Zimbabwe. Uh, the best uh, part of this story about that Song is that in a few months later, he was invited to the, the Zimbabwean liberation uh, celebrations and was able to sing this song in front of the African, the Zimbabwean people. Nice. So,
3: yeah. All right. All
0: right. Let's listen to Zimbabwe. Oh.
1: Little struggle. Cause that's
2: Well, Zimbabwe was the third trip that Bob had made to Africa. Um, And this was in 1980. And what he did, well, actually, what he wanted to do was eventually open a studio somewhere in Africa and record African musicians. But that was not to happen. Bob financed the whole trip himself. He was invited to be the headliner at a Zimbabwean independence celebration. He built the stage. I mean, he had the stage built, he brought the lighting and he wanted to give them the same show that they would get in the in Europe or the United States. Everybody was very excited in the streets because they already knew about Bob Marlin. They'd already heard the songs, Zimbabwe. So they felt very <clears throat> happy that uh, Bob was coming to their country. The weird thing that happened was that there were these uh, freedom fighters, which were called ZANU, and they wanted to come in to the concert, but the gates were locked, so they used explosives and tear gas to blow down the gate. And everybody in the audience and on stage felt the tear gas wafting in, you know, on the on the wind yeah. uh-huh. and got kind of panicked. But the interesting thing is that for some reason, people didn't totally panic and they just hung out and stayed there. The freedom fighters and everybody else who wanted to didn't buy a ticket came in and the concert went on. And, you know, as somebody who's currently watching The Crown, I found it interesting to read uh, that Prince Charles was at this concert to officially accept the Union Jack back from the Zimbabweans because they had become free from Great yeah. Britain.
0: Yeah, so, uh, another, another empire, a uh, uh, pillar of the empire had fallen, yes.
2: Yeah, I can just see Prince Charles there with the tear gas and the...
0: We've just 2 guests, the Prince. Oh, and the, shit. And
2: the reggae and everything. Yeah. And uh, then um, because he was so interested and really wanted the people that didn't have money to be able to attend the concert, he did another free one the next night. So he was a stand-up guy. His next album was called Uprising, and it turned out to be his final yeah. album. It was yeah. filled with yeah. intimations of mortality, including his most emotional track, And one of his best love songs and my very favorite song, the acoustic redemption song, which he was trying to record it with the band and Chris Blackwell came in the studio and suggested that he just do it with his acoustic guitar. And that's one of the things that makes it so special is it's just him and the guitar. And it's a very emotional song. Uh, all the yeah. vocals on the album, on the album Uprising, were done live. So let's listen to the Redemption song.
1: All pirates, yes, they rob I. have no fear for atomic energy, cause none of them can stop the time. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? Ooh. Some say it's just a part of it. We've got to I uh,
2: Just the love goal. that song. It's, it's uh,
1: Won't you so, you I don't sing? know.
2: There's something about it. I don't I can't put my finger on it. Why it's so um heart heartfelt. I,
0: I I think he's really tapped into, you know, his own past. Um and he's being honest that uh, you know, he didn't have a lot um in uh in Jamaica. Um, you know, uh, uh certainly um you know, so all but what he had was music. Yeah. Know? Those, those redemption songs.
2: And it, it's lovely, too, in light of the fact that, um, by all accounts, he was an extremely generous man, constantly mm-hmm. giving back to the community. I mean, he would open the gates to the compound and people would line up and tell him what they needed. And he would gesture to someone to write them a check. Or give them money. Uh-huh. Like, I need money uh-huh. for food. I need money to send my kid to school. I need money to fix my car. <clears throat> and he would just give out money, you know?
0: Always a community. Yeah, yeah. he really was. Well. I know.
2: It's so rare in rock stars. Um, yeah. Okay, we're nearing the end because uh, now we're in uh, 1980. He toured Europe, and it, he was wildly successful He sold out uh, two Madison Square Garden shows and decided that he wanted to reach the African-American audience, uh, which wasn't really tapped into him. It was mostly the white Americans who uh, loved reggae at the time, at least. And um, what he did was he agreed to open for the Commodores, who I remember very well. And um, in order to get the black community interested in coming to the concert where he was opening for the Commodores in Madison Square Garden, they made a deal for the radio, the black radio stations to play Could You Be Loved every hour leading up to the concert to try to encourage more black people to be uh, Bob Marley fans and to come early enough to see Bob Marley and not just um, the Commodores. But what happened was... As soon as the white uh, audiences saw that Bob Marley was going to be playing, they bought up a bunch of tickets and the concert sold out. But the white audiences left after Bob Marley played, leaving the Commodores with a very sparse, half-packed, yeah.
0: black Right, right. And, right. you know,
2: if it was a smaller venue, that would have been fine. But in a huge venue like that, it, it yeah,
0: doesn't, it doesn't yeah. look good. Right.
2: So um, the day after that concert, while playing soccer with his band, he had what appeared to be a seizure and was taken to the hospital where scans showed his body, including his brain, was riddled with cancer. The doctor said mm. he had more cancer in him than he'd ever seen and marveled at Bob touring and playing soccer with the energy he did. Uh, Bob flew to Pittsburgh for what he agreed would be his final show. And you wouldn't have known it was his last show because it was like any other. He gave 110%. The band was perfect and the audience went wild. Then Bob went to Miami Hospital for a week to get a second opinion, which was the same as the first, giving him three to nine months to live. Some say he never smiled again. One doctor suggested that his condition shouldn't be shared with him, that he should just be allowed to die happy on stage, which maybe is true. The chemo started in Miami and um, Cindy... His current girlfriend, Rita, his wife, and a couple of other women who may have been past girlfriends, took care of him while he was going through chemotherapy. But then he decided to go, he wanted to try alternative treatments, so he went to the Bavarian Alps where he was treated by an ex-Nazi doctor, who maybe wasn't really, we don't, we don't know exactly if he was an ex-Nazi. But anyway, the women in his life didn't want him to go because it was such an alien climate. They just wanted him to stay, you know, in the warmth and, and uh, bosom of his family. But uh, his male counterparts uh, decided that was the best thing for him. And he spent seven months there. Um, and there are many touching remembrances in the book of people who visited him there when he was being treated in, uh, I don't know if it's, Germ- I guess, Germany. And in May 1981, the doctor said there was nothing more he could do, and Bob returned to Florida, where he'd gotten his first treatments, to be with his family, and was able to see his sons, Damien, Stephen, and Ziggy, for the last time. He passed away on May 11, 1981. His funeral... In Jamaica was the largest such gathering in the Caribbean, more than one million mourners, half of Jamaica's population. He was buried at his child home of Nine Mile, and apparently there were seven rainbows over Kingston that day. Um, some say he prophesied his death at age 36. He's remembered as unfailingly generous, disin- disinterested in living like a rock star, with a strong spiritual presence, but in the end, lonely. His posthumous greatest hits album was Legend and it was the longest charting album in the history of Billboard, of Billboard's catalog album chart between 1984 and the present. So that was the longest charting, the, the album that stayed on the charts longest, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and his Facebook page attracts more than 60 million followers. And that is the when the the book ends with his death. We don't hear much about what happened, what followed after that. But yeah, I have a... A respect for Bob Marley. I mean you can tell that he really was a person that was on earth to try to better the conditions of the of his own people and you know, poor people around the world and people that are taken for granted and used by powerful people. And um yeah, you gotta really give him cred for that.
0: Here's what I know. Um, he is the most famous rock star in the world. Westerners, Americans uh, find that hard to understand. But if you go Mm -hmm. anywhere outside of America, especially the tropics or Africa or something like that, you will see Bob Marley. You will hear Bob Marley. He made a greater impact than any other rock and roller uh, when you get right down to it, it's if you look at it from that perspective, he is the greatest rock star of all time.
2: Oh, that's very cool. I did not know that. Mm. Yeah. That's really, yeah. really yeah. cool. Yeah.
0: He, he, it's, it's, uh, I, somebody told me that. And I was like, oh, and I thought back of the travels that I've had and then the travels that I've had since then and was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah is, it's, it's absolutely pr- pretty obvious when you, travel around and you see it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's, there's either like, you know, it's the Jamaican colors. So, you know, and and, uh, you know, a a song title or, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's just, you know, a ton of uh, these graffiti artists, uh, portraits of Bob everywhere. It's just crazy. And yeah, he, he really, uh, really connected uh, with a lot of people and he's such an interesting bridge to a lot of other music, you know, reggae is kind of the first, you know, for lack of a better term, world music Mm -hmm. that is completely embraced and accepted by the rock and roll intelligentsia and fan base. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and it's still going to this day. I mean, it's still, it's a huge uh, subculture uh, in, uh, in the rock and roll space. So, you know, and it's, and, you know, there, there, there are lots of people that you can, point to as, is, is helping to get there, but really, you know, Bob is, is, you know, God, Lord, Savior of the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, when, when you, when, when you strip it all yeah. back, you know, <laughs> um, you know, we've lost some people this year, um, you know, toots, uh, right, uh right. male, uh, who, uh, um, you know probably had the first reggae uh song um on the chart um you know he, he, he he's he gone uh i know bunny's still alive we know you know as i said earlier peter tosh was tortured and murdered in 1987
2: right. i think johnny nash um, just died
0: johnny nash just died here a, a couple of weeks yeah. ago now he was 80 some odd years old and right. you know he lived a full life and all that and you know those things happen even sure. in the age of covid and but um yeah, I mean, at 36, Uh and it's, it's you know, his his legend <laughs> grew far beyond oh, sure. uh, what he ever knew. Well, uh, the and, signs and were so,
2: I mean, that was the, you know, how old Jesus was when he died, for example. I mean, there's a lot of things that people can connect to yeah. Bob Marley to show that he's somehow a, a spiritual or, you know, a spiritual leader. And um he saw himself, he saw himself like that, like this 12 tribes organization, which was a Rasta organization. He was, he saw himself as the Joseph of the 12 tribes, you know, which was yeah. like one yeah. of the, one of the branches. Of well, the 12 one tribes. of the yeah. Jewish,
0: Jewish, uh, yeah. to, to, to to follow the Jewish uh, tradition yeah, of the uh, 12 tribes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, and the lost t- and the lost 13th tribe, I suppose.
2: I know so, it's very complicated. It, 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 it. Anyway, yeah.
0: let's not go down that road. So what, what, it, what did you think of the book?
2: Well, like, I, like I said, I, I uh, thought it was great. We only
0: do books you like. Right. So.
2: <laughs> well, I listened to like the first eight chapters on audiobook, and the author reads, uh, the interview, uh, questions in the in the patois and um that the people spoken so it was kind of like hard to you know always understand what he was saying but it gave a nice flavor to the book because you could hear you know kind of the musicality of the of the language and the um you know the accent um but and then when I got to the actual physical book which is out in paper book Paperback. It's it's really fun to read the, you know the the words of the, the oral history interviewees. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. really interesting, yeah. and you get to hear from uh, a lot of people, including the one of his white relatives, maybe an uncle or a cousin or something like that, who remembers you know stuff about the father Norville, and um, you know it gives a very round kind of uh not just from one person's point of view but from many persons points of view so you get a yeah. very uh yeah I, I, all i can think of is kind of like a a global or like a round view of bob marley and his life and all the different versions of it and the people that that uh interacted with him so yeah i thought it, I, I i would say it's not a beginner book on bob marley you know, but anybody who knows anything about the Bob Marley story would enjoy delving deeper this way. Probably not oh, the good. best way for me to learn about Bob Marley, but it's very interesting <laughs> because I love, I you know, I used to, I was an anthropology major and a folklore kind of sub major in college. And um, I, I think the oral history tradition is, is very interesting to me. So in that way, I really valued reading a book like this yeah cool Uh, yeah cool and so i thought we would end uh with the song jammin which is off uh which i uh, found on the legend album which we haven't heard yet but i think a lot of people will recognize and kind of go out on a little bit of a more of a high note High note.
0: (laughs) well before we do uh what's
2: next i have no clue
0: You haven't picked the book yet?
2: And people can get in touch with me on Twitter. I I forgot. Oh, no. Actually, on Facebook, I have a page, the Rock and Roll Librarian. So if you want to message me through Facebook with ideas, Mm -hmm. with your favorite uh, books that you've read about musicians, you can do that on Facebook or on Twitter. Or make suggestions. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. Make suggestions about what you've read. That's really good. Uh, On Twitter, I'm at Sorenson Shelley. So that's not mm. too hard to remember. That's
0: S O R E N S E N. <S-S-E-N-S-E-N>. No S. So S O R E N S E N. No,
2: it's not. That I am Danish, but it's not spelled that way. Yeah, I know it's crazy. S O N Shelley S H E L L E Y. Oh, go to the webpage.
0: That's right. You have yeah. That's right. You have the Shelley with the E too. So make sure everybody named after the
2: great poet Percy Bish.
0: Sorenson with the O. Yeah. Shelly with the E. That's right. The extra E.
2: Hey, not extra. That's the E that's meant to be there. Anybody doesn't have it as the minus E. The lesser The less E. Well, well,
0: hopefully, we will uh, see you sooner than later. Yeah. Since, uh, let's see, your last, let's see when your last podcast. Oh, don't
2: go on about to, that. I'm when going to give like, you a hard time. No, this is, my, okay. This is, this is you time asked to me give how I was. Oh, my father died <laughs> and my cat died. Yes,
0: I know, I know, I know. August 30th. But they, they want to hear more from you. I know, so just, but let
2: me know if you want to yeah. hear more from me and I'll step it up. Yeah. You guys. I'd, <laughs> I'd like to that. hear from my fans if anybody would like. Yeah. contact me i would love to hear from you
0: well i'm sure you're going to get lots of mail this time <laughs> since we actually talked about yeah. it so all right let's do it let's get out of here um enjoy uh your uh we're in the holiday season yeah. chances are we won't have you back before the end of that oh, no. uh and uh we'll, we'll we'll probably be into this new year i believe they call it 2021 well, thank god is where we're heading. Uh, so, uh, and uh, we will leave you all with a little jam.
2: jamming. Bye.
1: John Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please. Purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the R N R A P. We are on Instagram at rnrarchaeology. N R Archaeology. Tweet us at rnrarchaeology. N R Archaeology.